You can turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. It's at the very end of your Bibles. And if you are using one of our pew Bibles that's in the rack in front of you, it's on pages 965 and 966. And if you're a guest with us and you do not have a Bible of your own, you are welcome to take one of those out of the rack, and that's our gift to you today. So please take one if you do not have a Bible of your own. Revelation chapter 2. There is more to this than meets the eye. That's a saying that's true in a lot of areas of life. There's more to this than meets the eye. But I will say that we've experienced recently how true this is in home renovations. <laughs> so you all know that we moved here last March and God gave us a house. We still have to pay for it, but he gave it to us. And since we moved in, Barry Smith has been doing a number of projects for us. He's rebuilt our back deck. He's remodeled two bathrooms. And I think one of those bathrooms might have brought Barry very near to the point of retirement. As he was tearing down the old bathroom walls to the studs, he discovered that the builders used not sheetrock, but a plaster that's almost as heavy as concrete in the walls around the shower. So it took him several days to get that stuff chipped out of the walls, and he said that by the time he got done, he thought he could hear the house sigh with relief. It was like the floor had risen an inch after he got all that stuff out. Well, when you start a renovation, you never know what's behind the scenes. There's always more than meets the eye, and things are often worse than you think. But by the time you're done with the project, it can be better than you imagined. Let's read Revelation 2, beginning with verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word for us today. Jesus rewards his faithful sufferers. Jesus rewards his faithful sufferers. Now, for those of you who have been with us for several weeks, you know we're in a series of hearing Jesus' words to his church. And we're looking at how Jesus has spoken to the seven churches, which we hear, we hear about in these first few chapters of Revelation. And we're listening to what Jesus has to say to our church as we hear what he said to these churches. Today, we come to the second of these churches, the church in Smyrna. 
And we're going to use two points to summarize Jesus' message to them. First, it's worse than you think. And second, it's better than you can imagine. Now, before we look at Jesus' words to the church at Smyrna, we need to know a little bit more about this city. Where was this church and what were they facing? What was going on in this place? Last week, if you were with us, you remember we saw and heard about the city of Ephesus and the church that was there. And like that city, Smyrna was a beautiful and a bustling metropolis. It was wealthy. It was on a seacoast, so it had trade coming through it. It had a huge population for its day. It had a library. It had stadiums. It had, it had gymnasiums, all sorts of stuff that you would want. It was impressive. It was also a city that was highly religious. Early in its history, Smyrna had just given itself to the empire of Rome. It was all in with Rome. And so it devoted itself to the worship of the Caesars, the emperors of Rome. They even built several temples in their city to the emperors to show how loyal they were. Now, what difference would that make for followers of Jesus? Well, let's say you were part of one of the trade groups in the city. Think the workers' unions or maybe the chamber of commerce in the city. If you're part of that, when you come to pay your dues to your trade group, what else did you have to do? You had to confess that Caesar was Lord and even had to offer a sacrifice to him or in honor of him. Now that's going to create a problem for followers of Jesus. And we'll see more about that as we go through the, the text this morning. But the church of Smyrna was under intense pressure to give up their allegiance to Jesus and to confess their allegiance to the emperor instead. Another factor that was true about the city, though, was that it had a large Jewish population. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you are familiar with the book of Acts in the New Testament, you may remember that one of the groups that was most hostile to Christians early after Jesus went back to heaven, one of the groups that was most hostile toward Christians was the Jews because they felt like this was a cult with a false messiah, and they wanted nothing to do with these new Christian people. And 60 years, about 60 years after this letter was written to the church in Smyrna, there was a famous church figure named Polycarp. He was a leader in the church at Smyrna, and he was actually martyred in the city. He was burned alive. And one of the groups that, was, that called for his death most vehemently was the Jews. So, these believers in Smyrna are up against a lot. And last week, as we looked through the message to the church in Ephesus, we identified a pattern that goes through these messages. First, Jesus identifies himself in a particular way. Second, he tends to commend these churches for something that they're doing well. Then, he often will rebuke them for something that they need to change or need to grow in. And then lastly, he calls them to respond. And you might have seen that pattern as we read through the message to Smyrna this morning. But there's a significant difference. Did you catch it? What's missing in this message to Smyrna? There's no 
rebuke. So apparently, the church at Smyrna is doing pretty well. No, they're not perfect, as we're going to see as we go through this, but they're trying to stay faithful to Jesus, and they're holding on to him even with a whole lot of pressure from outside the church. So let's jump into the text now, and let's see how Jesus describes himself to this church at Smyrna. Look back up at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is at the beginning and he is at the end. He has written the story of history and he is bringing it to its conclusion. And he's also the one who conquered death and he lives forever. Now, why would that be significant for the church at Smyrna? Why do they need to know that about Jesus? Well, keep that question in mind. We'll come back to it a little bit later. We're going to keep moving through the text right now. While Jesus commends Smyrna next, he moves into this time where he approves them for something that they're doing. But even as he's commending them, his words really don't sound that encouraging. (laughs) So what does he say next? Well, here's your first point. It's worse than you think. That doesn't sound very encouraging, Jesus. Let's see what he says. Beginning of verse 9. I know your tribulation. What was Smyrna up against? These believers are up against physical pain. They're facing mental anguish. They're facing social ostracism and rejection. But Jesus gets a little more specific. What does this tribulation actually look like for the Smyrnian Christians? Look back down at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, if, if the believers are in this wealthy city at Smyrna, why would they be destitute? Why would they be poverty stricken? Well, let's take an illustration from a country today. I prayed just a few minutes ago for the believers in North Korea. What do you know about North Korea today? Well, it's currently ruled by a dictator named Kim Jong-un, and he is the third in the Kim dynasty. So his father was before him, grandfather before him. And Kim has continued what his father and grandfather started. Each of them demanded that their citizens basically worship them as a god. And one of the ways that Kim Jong-un has enforced this is by requiring his picture and his dad's picture to be hung up all over the place. So if you walk out into a public square, you got big pictures of the dictators staring down at you. If you go into public buildings, government buildings, you've got pictures on the walls. If you go into homes, you're supposed to have pictures on the walls of homes. Why do they do this? They're trying to remind you who's in charge. And they've always got their eyes on you. And people are supposed to venerate even the pictures that are on the walls. So, I learned this week, you can actually get fined in North Korea if there's too much dust on your picture of the dictator. Because they want to know that you are devoted to the big guy. And so, they take this really seriously. 
Another example of this is that I recently read a story from The Voice of the Martyrs. I've mentioned this organization before. Voice of the Martyrs is a group that actually shares stories of persecuted believers around the world. And they also help to support persecuted believers in other countries. They shared this story of a man in North Korea who before he came to know Jesus, uh, his house was burning down one day. And what did he try to do? What did he try to save? He tried to save the picture of Kim Jong-un that was in his house. And because he did that, he suffered extensive burns on his face and his head and his hands because he knew he's supposed to venerate this above all his other possessions. There are parallels from North Korea to what we're seeing in Smyrna on the page. The emperor in this day, in Smyrna's day, was considered a god. And people who wanted to advance in business or in politics had to show that they were loyal to the emperor. So what happens if you show you're not loyal to the emperor? You don't get a job. You don't get to advance in politics. You can't get work. You can't buy or sell because you're not taking the mark. You're not being loyal to the empire and to the emperor. And so these Smyrnian Christians are ostracized. They're destitute. They're poverty stricken. And so what is... This is, part of, this is part of the tribulation that they're facing. But what's another part of the tribulation they're facing? What does Jesus say next? He says, I know your tribulation, in verse 9, your poverty, and third, the slander of those who say that they are Jews. As I mentioned earlier, there's this large Jewish population in the city of Smyrna. And even though some of the believers in this church of Smyrna were probably Jewish, they had believed on Jesus as their Messiah. So what's the Jewish community around them going to do? How are they going to respond? The Jewish community who does not believe in Jesus is going to look at these Jewish Christian converts as traitors to the Jewish faith. Now, kids who are in here, we've got a few, maybe, maybe not. They all left. Okay. Teens. Anybody, kids at heart, what's so annoying about a tattletale? What's annoying about a tattletale? It's somebody who's trying to get you into trouble. And why do they want to get you into trouble? Well, apparently they don't like you for some reason. So if you've got somebody who's playing with you on the playground or, you know, we adults are a little more sophisticated about these things, but we still can go around tattling or telling other people about what so-and-so did. Why? Because we want to get them in trouble with the authorities. We want to see them cut down because we don't like them. That's essentially what these Jews in the city of Smyrna were doing to the Christians. They didn't like these Jewish Christian converts, and so they would go to the Roman authorities and tattle and say, hey, you've got these Christians who are meeting over here, and they're not loyal to the emperor. You need to go and get them. And here's what the situation was for these believers in Smyrna. This is what they faced. Poverty and slander. And as if that's not bad enough, 
Jesus essentially says, what you face now is actually worse than you think. Look down again at verse 9. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa. Those are some strong words. So what is Jesus saying? The Jews who are tattling on you are not true Jews. Oh, they have Jewish descent. They're from the family of Abraham. They follow the laws of Moses. They're circumcised and go through all the rituals. They meet in the synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship the God of heaven. But they're not true Jews. Do you remember Paul's words to the Roman Christians in the book of Romans? No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. What's Paul saying? What's Jesus saying here to the Smyrnian Christians? True Jews, true Israel, are no longer an ethnic people. They are the people of God who have followed his son, who have followed Jesus. And so those who set themselves against the people of Christ are actually not the true people of God. In fact, Jesus says here they are the instruments, the tools of Satan. They think, these Jews think they are doing the work of God by saying this cult of Christians should be hunted down. They think they're pleasing God, but they're actually, they've actually become allies of Satan, the slanderer. Satan is the one who cuts people down, who accuses people falsely. And so these people are actually instruments, tools of Satan. You remember Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. There's this interchange where Jesus is talking to some Jewish people, and the Jews say to him, we are the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus essentially replies and says, don't rely on your family history. He says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus has some really strong words for those who are set against him and against his people. So, because Satan is the slanderer, because he is the accuser, anyone who sides with him and does the same kind of thing is just like him. You remember an example from the book of Job. Job is a faithful servant of God, and yet what does the devil do? He comes to God and he basically tattles on Job and says he's trying to accuse him of things in order to get Job in trouble with God. And so everyone who does the same thing is of their father, the devil. Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, the people who are slandering you are not the true people of God. They've joined God's enemy, and they're hurting you because they're siding with Satan. Well, whew, that just got really heavy for the people in the church at Smyrna. Because now, they're not just up against their Jewish neighbors or the Roman authorities, now who are they up against? They're up against demonic forces. They're up against invisible powers who are working through these humans around them to try to attack them. This 
is really intimidating. But then it's almost like Jesus piles on even more in the text. Look down at verse 10. What does he say next? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. As if it's not bad enough already, Jesus says what you face is going to get worse. And he just switched titles. Did you get that? He was just referring to Satan. Now he's referring to the devil. It's the same figure, but why does he switch titles? Satan means the slanderer, the false accuser. The devil means the enemy, the opposer. And so the Jews side with the slanderer to go tattle to the Roman authorities, and then the Roman authorities come and pound on the doors of the Smyrnian Christians, and they are siding, the Romans then are siding with the devil, the opposer of God's people. Yesterday, Liz's brother and his wife flew to India. They're involved with uh, an organization, a ministry that helps to rescue children who are in slave labor in the country of India. Now, India likes to present itself as a country with religious freedom. But in recent years, they've really cracked down on religions other than Hinduism because they view Hinduism as the patriotic religion. You're a a patriot if if you're Hindu. You're not a patriot in India if you're not Hindu. Well, as you can imagine, as a result, Christians in India have been intensely persecuted in recent years. And I saw a picture in a recent publication of a family of Christians standing in a burned-out shell of their house. People had come through while they were gone and burned it down. In another picture, at a different house, There's clothes and furniture and possessions that are just thrown out in the street. Because when when that Christian family was gone, people came in, broke into their house, ransacked the house, and threw their stuff out in the road. When Christians stand for Christ and speak for him, they face all sorts of tribulation, all sorts of hostility. Some of them in India are even imprisoned, beaten. Some even live under threats of violence. And in a context like India, we can see Satan as the slanderer because we can see people falsely accusing Christians. We can see the devil at work in India because there are people who are opposed to the work of Christ there. But I think for us, brothers and sisters here, that can feel very foreign and very distant. So when we're reading a passage like these words to the church at Smyrna, how do, how do we respond to this? How does this apply to us? Well, throughout our time, I want to give you a couple of different points of application. Here's one. We should remember that the devil is prowling around like a lion trying to devour the people of God. He is at work trying to attack our brothers and sisters, our family in different parts of the world. What do we need to do? We need to pray for them regularly. We need to remember them. 
The book of Hebrews says we are to remember those who are in prison as though we were bound with them. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's a tool for you. I mentioned already the Voice of the Martyrs organization. You could go to their website and sign up for their newsletter. They share stories on a regular basis of brothers and sisters, of Christians who are suffering. They also will send you a free prayer map that gives you a picture of different countries around the world where Christians are persecuted, where, where nations are hostile to them. And it helps you to see where these countries are and what Christians are going through there. I use this on a regular basis to pray for brothers and sisters in these countries. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. This is our family. And just because we don't feel the same hostility and pain that they do doesn't mean it's not happening. So I would encourage you to do this. Parents, I would encourage you to do this with your kids. Help your children as they grow to have an understanding of what it costs to follow Jesus. So Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, get ready. The devil is alive and well, and he is roaring in your city, and the tribulation you face is about to heat up. Now, it would be natural for them to say, why? Why does it have to get hotter? Why does the temperature have to get turned up even more? And how long is this going to last? Well, what's the first question? Why is this happening? Look what Jesus says next in verse 9. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. That doesn't sound helpful initially, but there's actually a glimmer of hope there. Why do I say that? Do you remember Peter's words in one of his letters? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. What's happening when persecution comes? Yes, the devil is roaring and trying to overthrow God's people, but what is also happening? God is at work to refine his people. Like you put a precious metal in a furnace and then crank up the heat so that the metal melts and the impurities come out, so God puts his people into the furnace of persecution and cranks up the heat so that their impurities will come out. God is at work out of love for his people. He's at work to test his people. That's why it's happening. How long is it going to last? Look back down at verse 9. You're being thrown into prison so that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Well, that doesn't seem like very long. You can get through anything if you know how long it's going to last. 10 days. Well, this may be a reference back to the book of Daniel. The book of Revelation pulls a lot from the book of Daniel. And if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, you'll remember what happened to him and to his three friends when they were first brought out of Israel into the pagan kingdom of Babylon. Here you've got four teenage guys, apparently away from their family, away from their homeland, away from their religion, and now they're thrown into this pagan culture and they're being asked to eat the king's food. 
which could be a way of showing allegiance to the king and to his gods. So what do Daniel and his three friends ask? They say, let us be tested for 10 days. Give us a trial period. Let us eat vegetables for 10 days and then see how we look after that. And what happened? If you know the story, you remember that over that trial period, God made him look amazing by eating vegetables. Now, that's not a commentary on what diet you need to have. <laughs> Let's just make that clear, okay? There's all sorts of weird diets out there with biblical names. That's not the point. The point is, God was at work to make something happen to give favor to his men, these four teenage guys who were being faithful to him. So then you come into this passage in Revelation, and what are they, what's happening? God is saying, Smyrnian church, I'm going to give you a trial period. It's going to be limited. It's not going to last forever. And I am going to refine you through the persecution that you face. So here in the midst of the bad news, the believers have a glimmer of hope. Even when the devil is opposing, Jesus is controlling even when the devil is roaring at you, Jesus is holding on to you. Even when the heat is searing, Jesus is caring. So Jesus tells his people that this is why they're going to suffer. God is turning up the heat so they will be refined. And brothers and sisters, here's another point for us. How do we respond to this? How should we think about tribulation? In our culture, in our American Western culture, we have gotten so used to comfort. We're so used to riches and possessions. Even the poorest one of us in here has so much compared to many of our brothers and sisters around the world. It is so easy for us to be comfortable. And in one sense, I don't blame us. This is what we've grown up in. This is all we've known. But we need to have a different perspective on tribulation, on pain, on suffering when it comes. It's easy for us to think of pain as something that we should just try to avoid at all costs. I shouldn't have to suffer. That should never come my way. And if it does, something's wrong. No. The church throughout, human, throughout church history has viewed suffering as actually the way that God is at work in his people. The church has actually viewed suffering as a way that we can get closer to our Lord. Do you remember Paul's words in the book of, the, of Philippians? He said that he would get a deeper knowledge of Christ. How? Through the fellowship of his sufferings. And I think we in the American church have completely forgotten about that. It's hard for us to remember and believe that we actually get closer to Jesus through suffering. So I don't know what God has for us in our future. But right now, we need to start having a biblical mindset of suffering so that when it hits us, we're not thinking, oh, this is terrible. Something's wrong. No, something may be very right that we are the people of God, and he's turning up the heat so that we may be refined. 
We know that God has good purposes through suffering because of what Jesus says next. Look at the beginning of verse 10. I skipped over this, but let's come back to it. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear, and then at the end of verse 10, he says, be faithful. Don't fear, be faithful. Well, how can someone not fear when they're facing prison and maybe even death? That just seems illogical. Don't fear, you're going to prison and you might die. How am I not supposed to fear? Well, let's remember who this message is coming from. Let's go back to verse 8 and look at the description of who's speaking. Who is Jesus? The words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Why do the Smyrnian Christians need to know this about Jesus? He was the first, he was at the very beginning, and he's the last. He's going to be at the very end. No one is going to overthrow his plans. And he's also the one who died and who came back to life and who will never die again. He has conquered death. The death that some of them will face. The death that maybe some of us will face. Jesus has conquered death. He's beaten it and he's alive. And so they don't have to fear physical death. Instead, they can be faithful. At the end of verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death. Show yourself trustworthy all the way to the point of ultimate sacrifice. Keep your faith in Jesus all the way to the end. And all through the centuries, from Smyrna until today, Christians have done this. They have held on to Jesus even to the point of dying. So here's one more application for us here. It can be hard when we don't face impending death right now. We really don't live in fear that somebody's going to come and pound on the door of our church and walk in and arrest me or arrest some of you and haul us off to prison. We don't really live in fear of that like some of our other brothers and sisters do. So what do we do? If we are supposed to remain faithful even to the point of death, what are the things that we do face if we don't face death? We face hostility from people who don't like Christians. We face the cruel jokes that people tell about Christians. We face the false accusations that people spread about Christians. We hear about Christians who get passed over for jobs or who get taken to court. How do you respond in situations like this? It's so easy for us when we face a little bit of heat to clam up, to shut up, and not to confess that we are with Jesus. But if we clam up now when we don't even face death, what's going to happen when we do face death? And I think right now, when the temperature is fairly low, we have the opportunity to exercise some spiritual muscles, to continue owning Jesus, even when it's not popular, so that when the temperature does get jacked up, we actually will have some spiritual muscle to bring to the table to own Jesus even when we might die. 
So I would encourage you to think about where do you face opposition, hostility, maybe a little bit of discomfort because of Jesus. Where do you face that? And are you willing to own him in that situation? Jesus says, don't fear. They killed me. They might kill you, but I conquered death, and so you will conquer death too. So, Jesus has said things are worse than we think. We are up against some heat, and we're up against spiritual forces that are stronger than we are. It's worse than what we think. But now Jesus says, second big point, it's better than you can imagine. What does Jesus promise to those who remain faithful to him? Look down at verse 11 at the end of our passage. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Last week, we heard Jesus say something similar to the church at Ephesus. He said, if you conquer, I will reward you in a certain way. What did conquering look like for the Ephesians? If you were here last week, you might remember, conquering looked like repenting, coming back to their first love. What does conquering look like for the Smyrnian Christians? It looks like dying. Wait, what? How is dying conquering? Well, look at verse 10. He says, be faithful unto death. Hold on all the way through poverty, through slander, through prison, and even through death. And if you do that, if you hold on to Jesus all the way through that, you will conquer all the way through death. Well, how is death conquering? Death feels like the greatest defeat. Oh, but we have to remember who's speaking. Because Jesus is the one who suffered death on the cross. And on that dark day, it seemed as though the forces of evil had won. But it was in the very moment of death that God brought about the greatest victory. So, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians that God, at the cross, disarmed. He stripped the demonic powers and authorities of all of their power. He disarmed them and he showed them to be shamed by triumphing over them in Jesus at the cross. So against all odds, against all appearances, death at the cross was victory. And for these Smyrnian Christians, against all odds and against all appearances, their death could actually be victory. Why? Because if you stay faithful to Jesus all the way through death, what will happen? The end of verse 11. You will not be hurt by the second death. What's that? Later in Revelation, we find two times that the second death is described as the lake of fire. The final separation from God in fiery torment forever. That is the fate of all those who don't confess the name of Jesus, who don't own him, who aren't willing to hold to him even through death. And so I would say, friend, 
If you have never submitted to Jesus, if you have never confessed that he is the Lord of your life, if you have never bowed to him and received him as your ruler, your savior, your king, this is the fate which awaits you, the second death, an eternal separation from God. So what is Jesus called to you? Come to him. Believe in him. Submit to him. Own him. Because the cost for following Jesus is great. You might die, but the cost for rejecting Jesus is far greater. You might suffer forever. So what is worse in your mind? Dying now or suffering forever? The second death is nothing you want to encounter. But for those who conquer because they hold fast to Jesus all the way through death, they will not be hurt by the second death. That will not touch them. That will not harm them. That's the result of staying faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. But what's the, res- what's the reward of staying faithful to Jesus? Look back up at the beginning of verse 10. I skipped over this earlier. Sorry, the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus says, if you stay faithful to me, I will give you life. You might lose your life, but I'll give you life forever. And brothers and sisters, this is why I said that things are better than you can imagine. What is, what is forever life that Jesus is talking about giving here? This life is dwelling with the one who is life. It is gazing upon his glories. Life is seeing the Savior that you have loved and longed for. Life is serving the King that you have claimed to follow. Life is walking with him and talking with him. Life is drinking in his beauty. Life is working for him with perfect joy. Life is loving others with no barrier between you. Life is living in security with no fear and no anxiety. If you know Jesus now, you taste a little bit of eternal life, but we will drink of the well of life forever. If you know Jesus now, you see shadows of eternal life. Some of the effects of life now. We know that our sin has been defeated, but it still hangs on to us. But one day, we will revel in a life where no sin is around. No death will be around. This is the reward that Jesus promises to those who hold on to him even through death. You get life forever. As we sang earlier, in Christ, God has in heavenly realms his blessings on us poured. And that is why Jesus can say to these Smyrnian Christians, even though they're destitute and even though they're poverty-stricken, he can say to them, you are rich. 
because you have the promise of life if you cling to Jesus. So brothers and sisters, get ready. Suffering and tribulation are here and it's only gonna get worse. But get ready because the end is so much better than you can imagine. Jesus is worth it. He gives life, so don't fear. Stay faithful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you capture our hearts and capture our eyes and turn us to the things which we cannot see. Take our affections, take our love off of the things that are around us, which so easily distract us, and help us to remember what is true and what we have and what awaits us in your presence. And I pray for those in our midst who don't know you, who are separated from you. Would you be merciful to them? Would you draw them to yourself today? Would you help them to see that they need you? And I pray that they would turn to you. We pray in your name. Amen.